uh, presuppositions. So <clears throat> before I define presuppositions, um, somebody tell me, tell us, what is that? What are presuppositions? And we know you all know it. We're just getting to what I said. Yes, Becca. Yes, that's exactly what it is. You all know that. You need to break down the word. You presuppose something. Um, is it possible to have none? That's correct. We all have them. And we just want for our presuppositions to be more influenced the more we mature in our faith and Bible reading by the text itself. We're always going to bring things to the passage. You can't escape who you are and from whence you've come. I'm speaking in English. You can understand my words. That's just by virtue of you being who you are, where you are. Similarly, we bring a lot uh, to, to the passage. So as Becca said, it's the assumptions that we bring to the text. So let's think about some examples of presuppositions, and it couldn't be a better moment for the Ochulums to walk in as we talk about some of the presuppositions we might bring to the text. Uh, what are examples? Try to give me a bullet list. Individualism. Yeah, so just reading it like me and Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's. What's another one? Maybe cultural things, what hospitality would look like in America or something. Yeah, which I said right on cue as they walked in. That's a perfect example I wrote in my little side notes here. Um, cultural presuppositions. Uh, the ethnicities even of the individuals that we're reading about, supposing that they match our own or that the cultures that in which they live and operate and how they navigate society and their ways of thinking are identical to our own. And we just bring that in and assume that others must have thought that same way. Uh, why did Miriam and Aaron slander Moses in the book of Numbers? Because she married a Cush he married a Cushite woman. What does that mean? Almost certainly, she's dark-skinned, African, Cush. So perhaps he was as well? Or maybe we just assume they're all like monocultural in the Bible. And that assumption, when you walk into modern churches, and I've had the privilege of walking into church structures all over the world and seeing pictures of uh, the biblical accounts, different ones, even on the Holy Land tour, um, the mosaics that are in the walls and on the floors, or uh, in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia or South America, all over the U.S., inevitably the picture of Jesus on the wall Matches who? The people who inhabit the building, right? 
And if you just take that, well, they, they can't all be accurate, right? So if you just take that and think, oh, I wonder if some of my cultural presuppositions are coloring the way that I read things and assume. All right, what's another one? So individualism, uh, cultural, even ethnic presuppositions. Christocentrism of the Bible. Elaborate. The whole thing testifies to Jesus. Yeah. That would be a good one. Uh, yeah, I say bring that one. But there's some dangers. You know, we can fall off the horse on either side there. Uh, the illustration I've heard sometimes about Christocentricity is, you know, making every bush and every rock and every horn on the beast in Revelation means something specific. Maybe, you know, we can fall into the trap of allegory, but I think by and large, that's a good presupposition. Jesus told us that the whole thing's about himself. Okay, so cultural, ethnic, family, individualism. Um, okay. Well, today I just want to look at four things that relate to our presuppositions. I think these come directly out of Duvall and Hayes. I may have tweaked them just a little bit. Um, but first, just kind of introduction of what we're talking about. Pre-understanding, foundational beliefs, and objectivity. Can we be objective? So first, just by way of introduction, this is a quote straight out of Grasping God's Word, page 137. We as readers of the Bible are not by nature neutral and objective. We bring a lot of preconceived notions and influences with us to the text when we read. Thus, we need to discuss and evaluate these pretexts presuppositions. We need to discuss and evaluate these pretext influences lest they mislead us in our search for the meaning of the text. And then they say, did Joseph deliver the baby? Talking about not Old Testament, but New Testament, Mary and Joseph. And page 138 says, Ethiopians would laugh at us for suggesting such a preposterous thing. Well, Danny Hayes, one of the authors, served as a missionary in Ethiopia for a long time, which is why he uses this example of Ethiopians. Why would the Ethiopians have laughed Hayes out of the hut if he's in rural, remote Ethiopia teaching on uh, the birth of Jesus? Why would he say they would laugh at us for suggesting such a preposterous thing? Because men probably weren't even allowed in yeah, so it could be that, um, you know, gender thing. Would, would men have even been allowed in? What's another reason? It sounds like Joseph is actually delivering the baby. The question. Maybe that's the preposterous part. Right. <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, I'm not even thinking of the nuances of the text right now, and maybe I, I should have prepared that. Maybe there's a phrase in there that should make us think he actually delivered the baby, but, you know, if there is, it, it escapes me right now. But if we read it with that understanding, and let me say I'm exposing my ignorance about the narrative right now, but if it's not clear and we assume it, then that would be an example of a presupposition we're bringing. All right? So if it's clear in the text, I don't, I don't think this would be a good example. Like Amara was saying, Hayes adds, um, the story of Christ's birth recorded in Luke 2 is easy to read with 21st century Western assumptions, 
about who traveled in the caravan to Bethlehem with Mary and Joseph. Have you ever stopped to ponder who delivered the baby Jesus? In ancient Near East cultures, it's most likely that in the caravan were aunts and cousins traveling with Mary and Joseph because they knew she was with child. She was near delivery. It's also in ancient Near East documentation reliable to understand that in most cases, and I'm quoting, midwives were almost certainly part of the entourage as well who would have been there to help deliver the baby Jesus. It never occurs to us to consider adding midwives to our Christmas nativity scenes or our childhood sketches and plays in the service. Why? Because, though it's probably a growing trend now even in our country, we rarely see them used. In the day of first world Western hospitals, labor and delivery wards, nurses, and all that. Right? But other cultures that don't have such access probably read it just assuming, oh, yeah, well, duh, there's probably a midwife or somebody like that traveling with them. Makes sense? All right, so you can bring a presupposition that may or may not be accurate. You know, let the text test those things and not say definitively things that the text may be silent about. Okay, so pre-understanding. Uh, that's, that's the introduction. This is, this is the meat of it. Uh, somebody read to break the monotony of my voice. This is a quote from 138. How about Ricky Couples? Pre-understanding refers to all of our preconceived notions and understandings that we bring to the text, which have been formulated both consciously and subconsciously before we actually study the text in detail. Yeah, so just recently, after preparing this lesson, was seeing a, a social, social media poll about Easter. And uh, it's like all the things you hear about the life of Jesus that weren't actually included in the biblical narrative that we assume. And all the examples are escaping me right now. But... You know what I mean. We just import these things consciously or subconsciously, maybe because we've heard them many times or just assume them in our own reading. If our pre-understanding of a passage is accurate, great. No harm done. But what if it's not? Until you study a text seriously, paying attention to the words of the word, we simply don't know whether our pre-view is accurate our pre-understanding is accurate or not. So, pre-understanding could have these two big aspects, assumptions or agendas. Assuming that our pre-understanding is accurate. Kevin Van Hooser in another book on this same big idea of understanding the Bible called Is There a Meaning in This Text? The Bible, the Reader, and the Morality of Literary Knowledge. Van Hooser says, pride does not listen, it knows. This kind of pride encourages us to think that we've got the correct meaning before we've made the appropriate effort to recover it. And the enemy wants to tempt us that way. In fact, he even talks that way. His question is not an honest search for knowledge when he says, did God really say? He doesn't want to know the answer. He's speaking totally out of pride. And our pride will do the same thing. 
assuming we've got the correct meaning before we've made the needed effort to recover it. <clears throat> and then, not only that assumption, but our pre-assumed theological agenda. So I said there was these two things, assumptions and agendas. <clears throat> this is when we use a text to merely search for a specific theological slant that we're looking for. And we use the text to search for details to fit that already held agenda. This is a common problem in every era, right? And we're not immune to it. So uh, one of the people from church history that I admire so much because of his handling of passages, knowing where he stands in his theological convictions, he handles them in a way that so fairly presents the argument of the opposing view that if you didn't know what his view was, you would believe it. And it's not heretical things. It's different interpretations. His name is Charles Simeon. He's a Calvinist to his bones. Go read Charles Simeon on any of the hallmark proof text for Reformed understanding of salvation. You will come away with a watertight argument from the text of God's sovereignty in saving sinners. He's clear on that. Go read Simeon on some of the passages where the, the passages that are used as proof text for the opposing view. He's so fair to the text and to present the opposing view that if you don't read him on other passages, you might think that's where he stands. And we're all susceptible to using the Bible to support an agenda. Well, that's a theological example. What are other categories of examples that people could use the Bible for to prop up an agenda? Yeah, I think that's a great example. So elaborate on it just a little bit. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> like Jews use scripture, right? Yeah. The, the Mormons they think they're Christians. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a great example. I want to come back to that one in a minute because of a new trend that I've just become privy to, which probably shows how little I'm privy to that you all may be well aware of. I'll come back to it in a second. What are other examples of agendas? Sorry? The role of women in church? Yeah, so you can have a preconceived agenda, and then you can find a verse or two or ten that looks like it might support whatever your agenda is. Use of alcohol. Yeah, use, use, Christian liberties. Yeah? People use the idea of presuppositions to deny that the, you can uncover the truth found in the Bible. Yeah. I'd say like Yep, that's one of the ones I was thinking of. I mean, it's not uncommon. It might not be so common a generation from now, but for any any U.S. candidate, local or national, to use some kind of Bible verse to support what they're about. Come on in. <laughs> um, okay, any other examples you guys can think of of agenda people using the Bible to support an agenda rather than honestly studying the Bible? Yeah. 
No, that, that's exactly the one I was thinking of. Uh, even when Ty made his first comment. Um, yeah, I'd say pray, let's always be reminding each other to be praying for our church family. Uh, it's mostly adults in here. So say pray for each other's kids. Help each other. Uh, the elders are under no delusion that we've got a good plan. Uh, but we're trying to formulate a plan to speak into some of those very issues and, you know, how that's going to look and when that's going to happen, hopefully sooner rather than later. But we'll say a little bit about it right now um, from two angles. One is I could understand how a young person in this church might think we all, and pastors especially, have our head in the sand. Like they're getting dominated every single day with this gigantic narrative of the sexual revolution. Identity, this and that. Meanwhile, Grace Church is just preaching First Timothy. Like, do we even care that there's a big avalanche out here? Are we going to say anything about it or pretend like it's not happening? So on one hand, I could see how it might look like First Timothy is irrelevant which stay tuned for today's passage because it's not about gender and sexuality, but it's about the most relevant information in the universe. Um, On the other hand, using scripture to support an agenda, this is what I was alluding to a minute ago when I said, I'm just now becoming aware of this. And all you may say, oh, it's been around for a long time. I've seen more than a handful of things recently that are Bible spokespeople men or women, using Bible passages to support sexual deviancy and dishonoring God with their bodies. Uh, That the Ethiopian eunuch was transgender or that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, therefore, right? Arguments from silence. And so I would have thought that the enemy's old tactic of trying to get people to ignore the Bible would be his way to continue to try to discredit Christianity. I wonder if a growing tactic is to use the Bible to get people to discredit Christianity, which is what he's been doing since Genesis 3. So, one hand, pray for the pastors, pray for parents, pray for young people in this church. Um, But let's help each other you can, what I'm saying is you can use the Bible to support a nefarious agenda. And people are doing it all the time. So presuppositions and um, underlying agendas. So Van Hooser, that guy I quoted earlier, said, if you have an agenda and you're trying to find verses to support it, you have an overstanding, not an understanding of the passage. We're not to stand over the text determining what it means. Rather, we're to place ourselves under the text seeking to diligently determine what God means to say to us through it and how we're to live. I think it's a good differentiation. Okay, foundational beliefs and then objectivity. Uh, Let's get another two-reader volunteer or three-reader volunteer. There's three straight slides of quotes. We'll read this one. Thank you, Kachi. 
pre-understanding and foundational beliefs. Total objectivity is impossible for any reader of any text. Neither it is our goal. Neither is it our goal. Striving for objectivity in biblical interpretation does not mean abandoning faith or trying to adopt the methods for unbelievers. Okay, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. It relates to what Jeff was saying earlier. Somebody read this. It's the very next sentence in the same book. Who will read this? Thank you. We must let our pre-understanding change each time we study a passage. We submit it to the text and then interact with it, evaluate it in light of our study, and one would hope improve it each time. Okay, and then finally, I'll read this one. Foundational beliefs, by contrast, do not change with each reading. So, back to the first one, total objectivity. Like, have you ever felt like you studied a passage very diligently, the Lord spoke to you through it, and you could understand the argument of it so that you could represent it in your own words in a way that's faithful, then later come back to that same passage and realize you haven't even, you felt like you haven't even begun to see the depth of what is in it. Maybe because of something before or after, broader biblical context. That's what, ben, that's what uh, Hayes and Duvall are talking about here. Total objectivity. Like, knowing a passage as well as God knows a passage is, they're going to say, impossible and not our goal. But that doesn't mean that we abandon faith or trying to adopt the mes- methods for unbelievers. What they're saying is faith, not abandon faith. You have to be a believer to truly understand any passage. You might be able to understand the ink on the page, but you can't have the intended meaning from God unless you have a relationship with him. That's 2 Corinthians 3. To this day, when the law is read, a veil lies over their heart. But if anyone turns to Christ, there's conversion, then the veil is taken away. So what chicken or egg? Do you understand the Bible, then turn to Christ? Well, the Bible may lead you to turning to Christ, but to truly understand it, you have to have him. So you don't abandon faith, and you don't have to just adopt the methods for unbelievers. I think a regenerate six-year-old in the jungle of Papua New Guinea can understand the Bible better than a unconverted seminary professor in the highest institution in the world. So our pre-understanding should change. Our presuppositions need to constantly be filtered. Even on that passage we think we fully get, fully know, fully understand, studied it a hundred times. Insofar is it's not a foundational belief. That's the last slide. Foundational beliefs, by contrast, do not change with meaning, uh, with each reading. There are foundational beliefs that no matter what you bump into in a passage, even if it looks like it's warring against those foundational beliefs, your assumption is something's wrong with your understanding of the passage, not with the foundational belief. Because those beliefs come from the Bible. Right? So what are examples of foundational beliefs? What do you think our authors or I might be thinking about? I can't remember if I made this list or got it from them. 
Yes. There's only one way to salvation, and that's Jesus. That's it. That's foundational. No matter what else you bump into in the Bible that looks like it's going against that, you need to assume what you think you're seeing in the Bible is wrong. And how do you discern that uh, better? What's another example? Jesus is the Son of the living God. Yes. God incarnate, God's Son, second person of the Trinity. What else? Salvation is by grace alone, no works at all. Yeah. Total foundational belief, right? You can't, you can't have that plus workspace salvation. So if you read something that looks like that, you know it must be your understanding that's wrong of that passage, not your foundational belief. Virgin birth is very yeah, totally a foundational belief. Resurrection. Essential. Trinity. Yes. Christ as the head of the church, even though he's the son of God. Yes. Yeah. So here's some other examples. Uh, I'll probably just repeat some that you guys said. The Bible is the word of God. It is trustworthy and true. God has entered into human history. All the things you guys were saying about Christ and salvation. Meaning the supernatural does occur. Everything in the world is not just on the two-dimensional natural plane. God does intervene in human history. The Bible is not contradictory. It's unified. Nevertheless, God's bigger than we are. Therefore, he's not always easy to comprehend. Thus, the Bible has tension and mystery. There may be passages that, for the rest of our life, we don't feel like we have a full understanding of. And in eternity, God will reveal to us those things that we had wrong that we thought we had a better understanding of. Okay, so these are some foundational beliefs. Those things should not change every time we study a passage. But if it's not one of these core foundational beliefs, and the passage seems to war against what we assumed then maybe we need to more carefully consider what that text is saying, and uh, over time we may change our view. If you've never changed your view on anything that you've believed your whole life about the Bible, <laughs> are, you, are we even reading it honestly? Right? That's what we say a lot around here. One of the best ways to mess up what you think about God is to read the Bible. And you'll, it'll mess with you. It'll read you. All right, so these are the examples I just gave um, about foundational beliefs. And these things you just build your life on, and every passage you come to, you don't apologize for them. You just believe them, and you trust that God's going to help you understand how the passage you're studying correlates and coincides with, with the great foundations of the faith. Okay, the last thing I have is can we be objective? And uh, let's get, this is our last reader volunteer. Let's get a new, somebody who hadn't read for us yet. Please read this slide. We want objectivity within the framework of evangelical foundational beliefs. This type of object, objectivity has to do with preventing our free understanding, our culture, our familiarity, or our laziness from obscuring the meaning that God has intended for us in the text. Yeah. So those foundational beliefs don't change. We hold the same foundation that all evangelicals have held, but all the O-U-R, our, that are italicized, uh, we don't want any of us to get in the way of understanding. 
what God is actually saying to us. So uh, in another uh, part of their book, Duvall and Hayes say the solution to the problem, like how, how are we going to get a good understanding of the passage? Um, like Jeff was saying earlier, do we throw up our hands and say, well, we can never get to the meaning? No. But some tools that will help us get to the meaning, for those who've been around for a couple of months, Duvall and Hayes say, are things like that interpretive journey where you start in their town, the writer and the original readers, and you end in your town, in your heart, in your living room. And you're crossing this gulf with some reliable tools that help you get to a faithful understanding of the passage that also doesn't contradict anything else in God's Word. So one of the hallmark um, examples, y'all heard me use it before because I get stuck in certain gears and can't get out of them, uh, but of proof texting the Bible. Make it fit your agenda, make it say whatever you want it to say. You can do this with anything, but one of the examples I've heard a lot of Bible teachers use is uh, Judas hanging himself. Uh, the Bible says, Judas hung himself. The Bible says, go and do likewise. The Bible says, what you do, do quickly. Right? You can just grab clearly. That's not a consistent biblical understanding about the sanctity of human life. Uh, but that just shows how dangerous we can be if we bring presuppositions to the text that aren't faithful. All right, uh, that's the end of my lesson. It's not the most you know, heartwarming, soul-stirring, devotional fire any of us have ever heard, but hopefully it'll help us as we're thinking about reading a text. What comments or questions or examples, maybe even how you've fought through your own unhealthy presuppositions to get to a better understanding of a passage? So anything's fair game. We'll take a few minutes. Questions, comments, or additions? thought about a quote from Matt Nash's sermon uh, back in Greenlaw. I don't know how long ago this was. I think it was on his scripture memory sermon. Hmm. Uh, it may, may not be the right one, but he said, uh, you rake for leaves and dig for diamonds. And that was encouraging to me because I think I like to rake for leaves. It doesn't mean that you won't get anything hmm. uh, from reading something quickly. God's word is living and active and he's mm-hmm. going to accomplish his work in you. But uh, that was just an encouragement to me to put in the work to dig for the diamonds in the text. Good. Yes, ma'am. Um, I think I grew up um, like being taught this and being careful, like don't twist scripture to make it say what you want to say, you know, around your opinions or experiences or ideas. Um, and I think for several years, especially as a new believer. Um, treated quiet times more as if I was reading a textbook because of that mm. um, kind of like step back in personal view just you know afraid of you know I'm young um, and I don't want to mess this up mm. um, but have been really helped by um, somebody gave the advice sometime like if you're distracted by something during your quiet time something in life why don't you bring it into your quiet time, talk to the Lord about it, see if the scripture you're reading applies to it. And I've just benefited from that, but wondering, like, how do you walk that fine line of 
you're talking to a person, especially in quiet times, not necessarily Bible mm-hmm. study, but you're fellowshipping with a person who has personal things to say to you. Amen. But you don't want to twist scripture to fit your situation. Amen. Somebody want to respond to Catherine's thought? Something both you said made me think of something that Clyde taught me. Uh, so the book they're reading that Clyde wrote, um, the first to Catherine's, sometimes we might have inhibitions. If we've been taught, oh, no, you might get it wrong. Don't you read that, you know, unless you got great care. And then inadvertently we can become hesitant to read Scripture because we're scared we're going to get it wrong. The good news is you've got a lot of passages wrong, <laughs> right? Tons of them. And so keep reading. Um, there's a difference in error and heresy. Christians don't have any heresy. Those are those foundational beliefs. All Christians have error. All Christians, all Christians have error. Well, how do we find the authentic truth? We expose the counterfeit to the reality. You keep reading, right? So instead of being hesitant to read, because we know we do bring presuppositions to the text. We therefore ought to read it more eagerly because that's the one tonic that's going to combat the lies we hold or the wrong angles we bring, right? So continuing, and Jeff mentioned individualism, community, faith, a church, church history, the broad community, of Christians, like is our understanding consistent with what other Christians have thought about this very same passage? And uh, you know, if it's brand new, 
and God gave it to you, it's probably not good. <laughs> so uh, test it in community. Uh, and then to Amar's comment about um, every passage is God's word. And Clyde just drilled into me that the goal of our devotional reading is different than our study. And it's good to have both. And God, there's, not, there's a perforated line in between those. It's not a bold line. Because you can devotionally, the goal is to spend time with God, not to learn something new. What if you read a passage you know? And you don't learn one new thing, but you spent time with God. That's fantastic. What if you learn something new and you're, you don't heart commune with Christ? What Lost people can do that, right? So devotionally, you want to spend time with God and then study uh, you're looking for faithfulness, and you may or may not learn something new. So don't feel like if you hadn't learned something new or spent a certain amount of time or read a certain length of Scripture that it's been wasted. Because that's not your goal. Your goal is to spend time with God in devotional reading. And then when it comes to study, that's where you're maybe using tools and church history understandings. And that'll help us to sift our presuppositions and just over time, God files them down. They're never completely gone. That's impossible. And they're not all wrong. Like Matt was saying, Christocentricity. Please read the Bible with Jesus in view. That's a good presupposition. Bring that to the Bible. Just be warned. You can force feed him into any passage. <laughs> you know, there's, there's some dangers in that angle too, even when it's a good presupposition.